Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on the New Books in Intellectual History, we have Dr. David Weinfeld, Assistant Professor in the Department of Philosophy and World Religions at Rowan University. And he's also the author of An American Friendship, Horace Cowan, Elaine Locke, and Development of Cultural Pluralism, published by Cornell University Press this year. Welcome to the show, Dr. Weinfeld. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you for taking time out in your day to discuss your important book, um, very exciting, just published. And um, we'll take up most of our time discussing your book and then uh, end with a discussion of your uh, current research. But first, let's talk about your uh, educational teaching and research background. Okay, great. Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a historian by training. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in history, uh, and my my PhD is uh, joint PhD in in history and Hebrew and Judaic studies from New York University. Um, but I've been teaching in religious studies departments now uh, for the last six years, and that's where my appointment is at Rowan. So um, I have a range of interests, uh, but I primarily think of myself as an intellectual historian. And, and this book uh, that I wrote, An American Friendship, is really an intellectual history. Yes, very much so. That's what definitely attracted me to this, uh, this book and this topic. I wanted to, I want us to then talk about intellectual history, but what led you to study history? Why study history? You know, why was did you come to college as an undergrad with that in mind or was it a teacher or some experience? Um I wasn't a hundred percent sure what I wanted to do as an undergrad. I had uh I grew up in Montreal. And uh, in Montreal, we have a slightly different education system where high school ends uh, after grade 11, as we call it, or 11th grade. And then you do this two-year sort of pre-college or pre-university program, um, which I did at a place called Dawson College. And I studied uh, in a program called Liberal Arts. And it was really a range of history and literature um, and it was phenomenal. It was a wonderful experience. And so I entered college thinking that I might do philosophy, I might do history. Uh, and I ended up choosing history um, because it just, I, I've always loved stories. I've always loved telling stories. And, and really the book is, uh, is me trying to tell a story. Um, and so uh, I, I just stuck with it. Uh, at that point, and, and and that's what I'm, that's what I've been doing, and that's what I hope to continue to do. Yeah, it makes sense that you know intellectual history, in terms of its definition and its uh, development in the twenty twenty centuries, you know, comes out of literary studies and philosophy. I always think of it as it's very inherently interdisciplinary approach to history. So having a lot of interest, it makes sense, you know, that you would, you know, gravitate to intellectual history. Let's talk about your definition of that term, intellectual history. You know, how might you define the term either, you know, loosely or more applied to this particular book? Well, uh, the way I understand it is there's kind of a distinction between something that people call uh, history of ideas and intellectual history. And 
as I understand it, history of ideas is more, uh, you know, here is idea X, Plato's idea, and here's how it influenced Aristotle's idea. And you're really focusing on, you know, published works. That publishing wasn't the same in ancient Greece, obviously. But but the idea is that you're, you're talking about major ideas and how one idea flows into the next. And I think intellectual history incorporates that uh, to a degree, but it also is really interested in the biographies of the intellectuals involved, in the context in which they are writing, uh, in their personal relationships, in their experiences, in their professional life, uh, things that they do. And, and that's really the kind of, of writing that I try to do. I, I, I once heard uh, that uh, the late professor Tony Jutt uh, who was considered an intellectual historian called himself a um, a social he write he wrote social history of intellectuals and that's sort of um, how I like to to see my own work. I like that phrasing and um, I liked you know as someone who does intellectual history I like to think of myself as someone who looks at American thought a scholar of American thought I I will usually kind of um, de- define myself or frame myself in that way, because you are looking at, you know, the interior lives of these scholars, not just their, you know, work, if they are in the academy or not. And I think especially when it comes to African-American history, you're looking at Lane Locke. And although he kind of fits the definition of, I think, a more classic definition of the intellectual inside of the academy and publishing his books and ideas, um, because I look at Black women's intellectual history, you know, these individuals often outside of the academy um, for reasons more obvious than not. Uh, but I like that framing. Um, let's turn towards your book then, because you are looking at these two intellectuals and their friendship, you know, their interaction. So give us a, a brief synopsis of your book and what it makes it distinctive. Well, I, I like to think of my book as kind of a history or maybe even a biography of an idea. And that idea is uh, cultural pluralism, right? This sort of promotion of, of diversity, uh, ethnic diversity, really, in this case, um, in, a, in a certain territory or state. Um, but it's this biography of an idea told through the friendship of the two American philosophers who really shaped uh, that idea, Horace Callan and Elaine Locke. And uh, these are two really interesting figures. Uh, Callan is a Jewish immigrant, uh, becomes a leading American Zionist. He's a pragmatist philosopher. He's one of the founding faculty members of the New School for Social Research. And uh, Alain Locke uh, is the first black Rhodes Scholar uh, at Oxford. He is a professor of philosophy at Howard University. Uh, and of course, he's most famous as a kind of intellectual godfather of uh, the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s. And uh, these two individuals met at Harvard uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, and they became friends uh, when they spent the academic year, 1907-1908, um, uh, at Oxford University, uh, when Locke was a Rhodes Scholar and Callan was on a fellowship. And uh, my book charts their friendship um, from when they met and uh, were quite close that year. Uh, their friendship uh, faded over time. They were not best friends, uh, so they grew distant over time, but they reconnected uh, in 1935 and then remained friends uh, until Locke passed away in 1954, um, and Callan was uh, was involved in kind of eulogizing uh, Locke as well. So um, it's, you know, it's a story of friendship um, of these two intellectuals who are very uh, quirky characters themselves. Uh, I sometimes like to call my book a, uh, a buddy comedy, but more pretentious. And, uh, and so that's, um, you know, but it really, it, it sort of blends narrative history with an analysis of their ideas um, to give us an understanding of what cultural pluralism was and is, and especially this idea that they had of sort of cultural pluralism as friendship. Hmm. 
Right, right. You do say that early on and why you're looking at them in this perspective. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know how much we could talk about the idea of friendship. You do discuss this in your book and even looking at, you know, ancient philosophers and their ideas about friends and friendship. And, um, and you know, that's in your title, American Friendship. <clears throat> but looking at the book, it, it made me think, I think I got <laughs> a little turned off after that, la- you know, in terms of Callan, in, in regards to Callan's kind of treatment of uh, Locke and, and claiming uh, cultural pluralism. And the, but, but we'll get to that as one of our questions, but so, so they're friends, not colleagues or acquaintances, right? Your so well, so they, what's let the me, difference? Let me, let me just sorry. Let me just correct. They 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 first really meet when Ally when sorry when Callan is Locke's teaching assistant at Harvard. So they meet as, with actually a a teacher student or student teacher relationship, and they really become friends when they're more peers. Um, the following year, when they're at Oxford together, and your book. This goes beyond your, you know, your, your actual discussion, but your book also made me think about how the idea of friendship changes, especially now with new media, you know, in we're so distant from one another because we're behind these machines and we're on Twitter or we're um, on Facebook and and that that made me so so thinking about friendship as is defined in you know the early twentieth century versus now, right? People are writing these long letters to each other and you know um, and getting together and what what friendship was, especially for intellectuals, you know, who get together and talk about ideas. I mean that's that's what you know uh, intellectual friendship um, is is about. So how does your book, you know, obviously there's a lot of uh, writing about cultural uh, pluralism as an idea. So how does your book, you know, um, build on, engage with, or intervene in, you know, this historiography of this idea? So um, the connection between Callan and Locke and cultural pluralism uh, has been written about before to some degree, um, but not obviously to this extent. Uh, it's usually focused primarily on this one incident, um, the 1907 American Club Thanksgiving dinner at Oxford, uh, where the the racist Southern Road scholars uh, did not invite Locke, but they did invite Callan, and uh, Callan uh, boycotted the dinner and... Um, you know, that sort of solidified their friendship. Um, and then they continued to discuss these ideas that they'd begun discussing when they were student and teacher at Harvard. And, and it's from there, according to Callan's recollections, uh, that, at, that this idea of cultural pluralism um, comes from. So people have written about that, but but I really sort of extended the narrative. First looked at how they were like before they met, and then how their friendship uh, continued over time. Um, So that's sort of just one um, narrative intervention, I guess. But I also, uh, I tried to make, I guess, a more intellectual philosophical intervention um, in terms of ideas about cultural pluralism uh, that have been written about by people uh, like uh, David Hollinger, for example, in in Post-Ethnic America, or uh, Louis Menand, who wrote about that Thanksgiving dinner uh, in his book, The Metaphysical Club. Uh, Ross Posnock uh, wrote about uh, this in his book on Black, black Intellectual History. And, and my intervention there is, uh, you know, these, these scholars whose work, you know, I relied on and greatly admire, uh, I think um, pigeonhole Callan and Locke um, too narrowly, into um, and sort of misinterpret what cultural pluralism is. Um, And what I try to do is say that cultural pluralism is actually not that different than these other ideas that they talk about, um, the terms like the melting pot, like cosmopolitanism, etc., because you have to look at the lives of the individuals. That's where I feel like I'm doing the social history of intellectuals. And I think these are all intellectuals 
people like Callan and Locke, but also people like Randolph Bourne, who was writing at the time, or Israel Zangwill, uh, who coins the term the melting pot popularly, uh, or W.E.B. Du Bois, for example. These are all people who are invested in diversity, who value diversity. They value American diversity. And they have different terms that they come up with and slightly different formulations. But fundamentally, you can tell that they value diversity by the way that they live their lives, by the friendships they make, uh, by the relationships they have, by their professional decisions. Um, You see these are people who don't want, uh, they're clearly obviously not uh, interested in you know, immigration restriction or or, or discrimination, um, but they're also not interested in bland homogenization in America. They they are invested in diversity, and uh, and that's what I try to show in my book. Yeah, I think that's very well said. It makes me think about Du Bois and Boaz, you know, and their interaction. And um, you know, this is a community. This is an intellectual community of people who are having these conversations and forming. Uh, friendship. So I think that's a really great uh, point. Uh, well taken. You also talk about black Jewish relations and how your book might help us to understand um, further. And I think you're performing an intervention there as well, when it comes to the way we look at black Jewish relations over time. I mean, more recently, this whole dust up over Kanye West and um, being suspended from uh, Twitter. And there's this, this long conversation that's been going on all week about that. Um, But I think you raise this question of how we have, you know, have sort of misinterpreted the history of Black Jewish relations to an extent. So tell us a little bit more about that intervention, too. Absolutely. Yeah, I um, the the Kanye West uh, incident that has just taken place uh, is really a great example of where the focus of the study of black Jewish relations has been. And, and, and I believe it's really been largely on sort of what, what I call moments of cooperation and moments of conflict, right? So you have a mm-hmm. big focus on moments of cooperation in the civil rights era. And you have lots of people who have written about that, as of course, written about the famous friendship between Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, you have people writing a bit about um, the, uh, you know, Julius Rosenwald and his friendship with uh, Booker T. Washington. Um, and then you, of course, have people writing about the um, the major strike in 1968 that pitted uh, African Americans and and uh, Jew, largely Jewish teachers against each other in in Brooklyn, uh, or the Crown Heights riot, Crown Heights riots in uh, in Brooklyn in in 1991, uh, or um, Jews moving away from the Democratic Party towards the Republican Party, some Jews out of opposition to affirmative action, right? or people like Louis Farrakhan making anti-Semitic statements. Uh, or Dan Snyder, owner of the of the Washington Commanders, right, making racist statements, moments of cooperation and conflict, um, and even when they're talking about friendship, it's usually in this sort of religious realm or activist realm. And I really wanted to take this to the more intellectual and cultural realm, and I wanted to look at friendship, which I think is understudied uh, in in in. Black Jewish relations in this subfield, uh, and look at people who connected over ideas and over aesthetics, and and that's where I think um, Callan and Locke really had their meeting of the minds, uh, so to speak. And I think um, the lesson, if there is one, is that cultivating these kinds of friendships has real value, right? It has real value both for um, the communities in terms of cultural exchange, um, but also for individuals in terms of sort of broadening horizons. So um, that, that that's sort of how I see my intervention there. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a great point as well. You know, when we look at Black-Jewish relations, we are always thinking in the context of the civil rights movement, conflict, like you said, and... Um, it's making me think about the African-Americans and uh, Jewish Americans who formed the NAACP. Mm-hmm. 
like a like-minded group of people mm-hmm. who wanted to, you know, deal with the problem of racism mm-hmm. and, um, you know, look at these individuals and they had to have formed friendships outside of their activism. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we get the story. Okay. They were really committed to this and they created, you know, legal defense fund and, um, all of these things that really, um, give rise to the Harlem Renaissance, mm-hmm. but they had to have formed, um, in all of that true friendships. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's actually a, a rich topic that, that deserves further exploration. And, and the Callan Locke example, uh, is really just one example. I mean, there's been some work done, but, but much more needs to be done also specifically on, uh, black women and Jewish women, for example, in the civil rights movement. Um, developing friendships and yeah uh, yeah so it's 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 a rich rich area yeah it makes me think of somebody like Spengarn and um you know his you know connections to uh african americans yes oh absolutely Um, yeah so definitely, I think it's a, it's another book. <laughs> if you look I've, at somebody I've, like him, <laughs> I've, I've I've thought I've thought about it. I mean, I've thought especially, like I said, about looking. Um, you know, there there are people who who you know you've never heard of these sort of low level activists that but but that created these real connections. Um, uh, like um, there's this, a Jewish woman from Chicago in the 1940s and 50s named Stella Councilbaum, who actually wrote a column for the Pittsburgh Courier, and so she was really connected um, to um, to African American activist leadership, um, and she was uh, very progressive and ahead of her time. Right, so there's there are other examples. Um, that that uh, I could that I could point to, um, you know, and as you said, it's another book. Yeah, it definitely it makes me think about Zora Neale Hurston and her obviously her um, connections, you know, and how she finds herself at Barnard, you know, in these letters that she's writing mm-hmm. um, to uh, some women who are her benefactors and friendships, mm-hmm. but the way we look at it is not it's not through the lens of friendship at all. Mm-hmm. It's always, well, there's a level of exploitation here. And um, so we miss that, you know, I think dimension to an extent. Well, I would say that there are, of course, even in the friendships, there could be some degree of, I mean, exploitation is a harsh word, but but there's instrumentalization, right? And that's, that's part of what I talk about in my book, right? That, um, People become friends yeah. with different people, but they also rely on those friends to get ahead in certain ways, professionally or academically or what have you. So, um, you know, it's not always um, completely simplistic, you know, in terms of just like a pure friendship. Um, but there are elements um, that are, you know, more genuinely friendship elements. And there are elements that are, how can this person help me out? Sure. And we all do that. Yeah. Right. Yes. Exactly. With our colleagues, with our, you know, and then we see, you know, the mentoring relationship. Exactly. Um, I think your point is this is a, this is a friendship of at least of intellectual equals. Yes, absolutely. That they are coming together over ideas and discussing ideas. And, and through that, I think recognizing ultimately, it's not like they were out without any kind of bias, but mm-hmm. ultimately recognizing you know, equality through friendship and the possibilities mm-hmm. of, of cultural, you know, pluralism. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody like Annie Nathan Myers, it kind of makes me think about her friendships. And mm-hmm. there had to be a level of genuineness there because it changes institutions to an extent, these friendships. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. The, so. the woman I mentioned earlier, Stella Councilbaum, I mean, she was she developed a fairly close friendship uh, with uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. And you can mm. read their their letters and their correspondence. And they're very affectionate towards each other and uh, and and clearly felt that they had they were making common cause, but also respected each other and enjoyed each other's company. 
right? And that's it's that last point that I think is so important that these are these were friends. These were people that made an effort to spend time together, to write to each other, right? To, that that they exactly. prioritized their relationships uh, with each other. Callan and Locke did, and these other examples as well. Yeah, de- definitely. Like you're not going to sit down and write <laughs> extensive letter. I mm-hmm. mean, you could be doing something else, exactly. right? Exactly. It was if it was just wholly exploitative. Yes. You know. Um, so, what about sources? If we're talking about letters, did you find you know a good amount of letters between them and sort of um, different primary sources you used to construct your narrative? Yeah. So letters were a huge were a huge huge source for me. Um, and I'm, I'm an archive rat. I mean, I'm the kind of, give me, give me a bunch of musty old documents and I'm very happy. So I, uh, I was able to spend a lot of time, uh, at the lock papers in Washington, DC, um, at Howard university. Um, they are an enormous collection. I don't know if you've spent any time with them, but I mean, we're talking about tons and tons of boxes of letters, um, enormous amounts. Um, and, and of course, Locke used to write, you know, sometimes 10, 15, even 20 page letters to his mother um, when he was away at college or, or at Oxford, um, at Harvard or at Oxford. So so those were incredibly valuable sources. And, and anyone who's interested in, in Locke should, needs to take a look, especially at his, his correspondence with his mother. Um, you know, for Callan, his papers are divided. Uh, half of them are at Cincinnati uh, in the American Jewish Archives there, which is affiliated with the Hebrew Union College, and half are at YIVO at the Center for Jewish History in New York. And there, too, there are some great sources uh, at the American Jewish Archives. There's a diary that Callan kept in 1907-1908, the year that he really befriended Alain Locke that proved enormously useful for me. Um, so that and the letters, and I visited many, many archives, you know, Oxford, uh, Columbia University, um, Yale, uh, ar- archives at Harvard. Um, just, I really tried to dig up um, a lot of different sources. The w- one source that I really appreciated finding was actually uh, in a newspaper and uh, as an unpublished article about that, or sorry, not an unpublished article, but an unsigned article about that Thanksgiving dinner that I'm Mm. pretty sure that Horace Callan wrote, Uh, but it was in the Boston Advocate uh, in in January of 1908, and and I was able to find that, um, and that that gave some interesting details to that um, event. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm someone that really do, does try to dig up every last primary source and, and has a hard time putting some aside. Uh, but but that, was, um, that was a real pleasure for me in terms of writing this book. No, it's great that you had, you know, such a wealth of sources with Elaine Locke's writings, and especially the letters. Mm-hmm. I think that's um, really great. Tell us a little bit more about these two men. I think Elaine Locke is sort of more recognizable, mm-hmm. perhaps, to most. Mm-hmm. But and then a little bit about their background and how they came together. Sure. Um, so uh, Horace Callan, I'll start. I'll start with him. Uh, he's born in 1882 um, in uh, Berenstadt, which was then in uh, Germany, and today it's in Poland. And uh, he immigrates to the United States when he's five. He immigrates to Boston. Uh, His father is an Orthodox rabbi. Uh, Callan is the first of eight children, uh, growing up relatively poor uh, in Boston, Jewish immigrant neighborhood. Um, And he, um, you know, he excels at school and uh, he goes uh, to Harvard and after Harvard, he graduates and goes to Princeton to teach for a couple of years. Uh, he's then, uh, his contract, he's not hired back at Princeton. Uh, he's accused of teaching atheism. Um, and he later said if they had known he was Jewish, they wouldn't have hired him in the first place. Um, and so then he goes to Harvard to study first literature, but then philosophy. And uh, it's in that capacity that uh, he meets Alain Locke. Um, he goes on to go to Oxford for a year to a fellowship to finish 
his dissertation, which he's writing under William James, a uh, famous pragmatist philosopher. And, uh, and then he teaches uh, for several years at the University of Wisconsin, 1911 to 1918, and comes back to New York or goes to New York and, and is one of the founding faculty members of the New School for Social Research, uh, where he stays for the next several decades. Um, and so he becomes an important person in the history of pragmatism in, in American education. And he's also a leading American Zionist. Uh, he's friends with Louis Brandeis and other leading Zionists. He helps sort of bring Brandeis into the Zionist fold. Um, so that's sort of uh, the, the Callan story. And the Locke story, uh, as you said, is a little better known. Um, he grows up in um, Philadelphia. Uh, and also in Camden, New Jersey. And uh, he also, he goes to Harvard. That's where um, he takes a class, um, a George Santayana's class on ancient philosophy, where Callan is his teaching assistant. And uh, he does very well. He's a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford for three years. And he comes back and then uh, eventually begins to teach at Howard University, which he does for several decades, uh, teaching philosophy, but also really aesthetics and, and he is uh, best known, of course, as being um, sort of, as I said, the intellectual godfather of the Harlem Renaissance. He edits um, its most famous um, production, The New Negro, uh, in 1925. Um, and, and Locke is a very interesting character himself. I mean, they're both very, very quirky, as I said, and interesting. Um, so, for example, Callan spends that year in Oxford, 1907-1908, and he picks up an affected British accent, which he keeps for the rest of his life, such that people even yeah, think say- that he's British, <laughs> uh, which is sort of amazing. And then Locke, you know, Locke, he, his name is Alan, and he adds the I to his name to sound kind of French and more sophisticated. So um, <laughs> if anything, I like to say that these uh, these two men could bond over pretentiousness because they were both uh, very pretentious intellectuals, uh, but they were, uh, you know, they had very uh, interesting ideas. They were very impressive um, scholars and intellects. Um, they were both invested in cultural nationalism of a certain kind, right? For Callan, it was Zionism, but also Hebraism, as he called it, this kind of Jewish cultural nationalism. And Alain Locke, of course, was invent- invested in um, black cultural nationalism uh, through through the Harlem Renaissance. So, so that's another area where even when they weren't really in touch, they were developing kind of parallel ideas and parallel movements, uh, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, they also actually, one, one thing I, um, I should mention, there's a chapter in my book about religion because they also kind of had similar religious frameworks. Something that a lot of people don't know about Alain Locke is that, uh, he converted to the Baha'i faith in 1918. Um, and so, uh, he had this kind of universalist view of religion that the Baha'i, uh, faith, um, really, um, emphasizes. And Callan actually, um, though he become, he's raised an Orthodox Jew, becomes an atheist, kind of moves in that universalist religious direction as well. So they really had a lot of overlapping interests and, uh, and common ground. So tell, right, and I think that's the really strength of your book is talking about how they connected across ideas. Mm-hmm. And led them to like a, a, I think a place of equality, right? They could see each other mm-hmm. as equals around ideas. Uh, but let's go back to this idea of cultural pluralism that they're cultivating together through their friendship. Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned cultural nationalism. Can you discuss a little bit about um, their cultural pluralism? I mean, cultural nationalism later, like in the '60s with Rangaranga mm-hmm. and all these individuals. Like, there's a history of this. Mm-hmm idea that develops in black culture, mm-hmm. um, you know, black arts movement and Baraka and so forth. But mm. what, what is meant by this term cultural pluralism? Um, so I, I think it's not, um, it's not an overly complicated idea. Um, and that's part of its strength. I think um, for, for Callan and Locke, cultural pluralism was really about 
um, creating a space for different um, ethnic or cultural groups, or sometimes, of course, the language of race was used, racial groups, to um, to exist to coexist in America, so that their culture would not be absorbed completely into a larger culture, not be diminished uh, by its interaction with a larger uh, mainstream or with other cultures, but would in fact, in fact enhance each other um, through cultural exchange and through individuals operating in diverse contexts. And, and so I think um, both men were, were interested in creating that reality uh, for America Right. Because that reality was in jeopardy. It was in jeopardy twofold. One, because of thing, forces like racism and anti-Semitism and, uh, and, and prejudice against uh, immigrants and against the other, but also by this sort of force of um, assimilationism right? that said, you're OK as long as you conform and, and, and are like everybody else. And for them, right, it was the right to be different, as they call it. The, what difference does mm-hmm. the difference make, was the question mm-hmm. L.A. Locke supposedly asked to Horace Callan at Harvard. Uh, and and that, you know, that's what they were uh, invested in, is creating a space uh, for difference, for cultural and ethnic difference uh, in America. Yeah, I, I like the value of difference in, um, at its core. Um but I'm interested in this because in my own work, I'm looking at individuals in the 60s like Anna Arnold Hedgeman, and I'm calling them political, you know, pluralist. They are working across, you know, um, different organizations. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to develop this idea of, of um, pluralist interracialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that these are people who are not saying, well, we're going to separate ourselves and leave you alone. They are saying we're willing to cooperate and work with you, but we believe in black, independent black organization and black leadership within the larger civil rights movement. So I'm developing kind of a idea of the pluralist interracialist. So this book really, your book is really helpful to me and understanding the roots of cl- cultural pluralism that I think becomes a type of political pluralism among these civil rights activists mm-hmm. who are not nationalists in the sense that they're not territorial nationalists, mm-hmm. right? They're not saying, hey, we need a new republic. Mm-hmm. But they are saying, you know, we're willing to work with white people in order to gain black civil rights and we can coexist. hmm mm-hmm. And we can cooperate Mm -hmm. and we can have a more just society and celebrate our differences in the process. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's um, in practice, right, this idea when put into practice, and that's really kind of what the book is also all about, right? How is how are you taking this sort of abstract idea and living it? you know, in practice, it's um, it, it can be challenging. Uh, it can be challenging to sort of um, uh, navigate those those roads between particularism and universalism, right? Between cooperation and separatism, um, mm-hmm. and, and just as you said it uh, very well, I think you know this idea. These are not people that wanted territorial separation. Um, certainly at least not in the American context. And, and Locke was really explicit about that, even in really early writings that he was doing at Oxford and then back uh, in the teens before the Harlem Renaissance, um, that this was a sort of cultural distinctiveness that he wanted to cultivate, but not at all a segregated culture. right? And I think that's reflected right. in the New Negro. The New Negro includes black and white writers in it. I mean, it's mostly African-American, obviously, but um, there's never this idea of siloing. Uh, that's not what's going on. And I think uh, Callan would have would have said the same thing. Um, and, and I'll just give you one, one very quick example. Um, later in life, as their friendship deepened, 
um, Callan was working on an article, which he actually published after Locke's death. Um, he was working on an article um, on humor and on how different groups have used humor and comedy um, to resist oppression. And he writes his friend, L.A. Locke, and says, I'm interested in examples from the black tradition of this phenomenon. And L.A. Locke writes back and provides him some examples. And so um, that sort of thing is, I think, you know, the idea that different groups can operate in similar tracks, have something to teach each other about um, resisting oppression, in this case, through humor. <laughs> so um, that's the sort of, that's, that's a kind of practical way that I think they envisioned pluralism, right? How can we bring different groups to the table to, um, to operate um, for the same goal? And that's exactly what encapsulates somebody like Anna Arnold Hedgeman, I think, in the 60s, where at one point she claims to be a nationalist and says, well, I'm not talking to black to white people right now. And I didn't talk to them for two years, Mm -hmm. but she never stops um, seeking out ways to create coalition. Mm hmm. Like she never is not an interracialist who's saying Mm -hmm. we need to cooperate because we need to think about human liberation, Mm -hmm. you know, for everybody. So that like helps me, I think, frame that uh, understanding of her. I think what happens is people hear nationalist Mm -hmm. and they think separatist Mm -hmm. as in goodbye, I'm leaving. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. And and Locke was, of course, very explicitly anti-Garvey. Um, and and, and he, he didn't have that separatist vision. Um, you know, with Callan, it's a little different um, because right, Callan right. did have, uh, you know, he was a Zionist. So right. he, he, he was a believer in some kind of uh, Jewish independent uh, entity, uh, uh, whether you call it a state or some kind of uh, political entity in um, in in Palestine, um, though under what framework varied, he thought it could have worked maybe under a kind of confederated uh, framework like the United States. But in the United States context, Callan, like Locke, was not at all a, uh, a separatist or segregationist. And that's the way uh, Callan is sometimes portrayed. He's sometimes contrasted with Locke and with Randolph Bourne and others as being more separatist. And, and that couldn't really be farther from the truth. And the evidence is in how he lived his life and who he associated mm. with. Um, and, and, and that's true really for both men, right? They both uh, lived lives of cultural pluralism. Yeah, your your point about this cultural pluralism as friendship, I I like that um, phrase. And again, you see it with these activists in the 60s. They are still trying to cooperate with um, white organizations and stating that, you know, black people have to have, you know, some groups of their own and be able to lead. Mm hmm. And watch out for their own Mm self-interest, but they're not the lives they're leading, right? They're not saying, you know, I'm going to live over here and never talk to any white people ever, ever again. Yeah. They're doing it. Mm -hmm. So um, I think looking at this through the guise of friendship, I think it's like so um, powerful a way to demonstrate how people live their lives. Mm-hmm. You might say one thing and you might, you know, go out and say, you know, I'm a separatist and I believe in this. Mm-hmm. And then you have your friend come over who's, you know, clearly doesn't seem to <laughs> size up to this ideology. I think that's the mistake we make sometimes mm-hmm. that, that everybody's an ideological purist. And that's just, I think even the ideological purist mm-hmm. is not as pure as we think. A- abs- we look at the way they live their lives. A- absolutely, and and you again, you could tell both Callan and Locke um, enjoyed spending time not just with people who were different than them, but people who disagreed with them. Right, so they 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 knew mm-hmm. that they had things to learn from people who disagreed with them. 
Um, and, and, and that's evident through their writing, their correspondence, um, that, that they sought that out. Right. Something you bring up the the elitist, um, cultural pluralism as elitist project, at least as practice through the friendship of these two men. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So look, these were, these are people who are part of, uh, an intellectual elite, obviously, in, in the United States. Um, I think I, I call one of my chapters the talented among the 10th, right? So this was really a, a, a small slice, right? And this is where, you know, these are, these are two men who were at the top of their class going through high school and into Harvard and Oxford and had stellar academic careers and were uh, well-versed in a variety of texts. And uh, for them, you know, what they what they wanted to do is to hang out with people of different backgrounds um, who shared that kind of pedigree, right? Who, who, who could have those kinds of intellectual conversations about philosophy, about art, um, etc. And uh, over time... They might have softened um, their elitism a little bit. Um, interestingly, both men were very invested in adult education. Um, the New School for Social Research was obviously sort of founded upon that premise uh, of educating non-traditional students. Um, and Alain Locke was very invested in, in creating sort of black cultural uh, source material, his bronze booklets um, for um maybe, you know, non-scholars, um, to learn more. Um, but at the same time, they couldn't escape who they were. They couldn't escape who they were and they were intellectuals and they were elitists and they, um, wanted to, you know, be the smartest person in the room and hang out with the smartest person in the room. And, um, and so that's, um, that's one of the distinctions that I try to make in the book between actually cultural pluralism as they saw it and multiculturalism, which I think is how cultural pluralism evolves, right? What it becomes. That's of course the term that more people are uh, familiar with today. And, and multiculturalism is um, I think more interested in, things that are popular. Religion, for example. Multiculturalism is more interested in religion. Callan and Locke are interested in, in ethnic groups, right? They're writing about uh, Jews as an ethnic group, right? Not a religious group. And they're writing about African Americans and the Irish and Indians and all sorts of people. They're not really focused on religion. They're not focused as much on, on foods or clothing. Uh, they're interested in art and, and in ideas, um, and, right. and that's sort of how I see them as being elitist. And I see multiculturalism as being uh, more uh, populist, if you will, more more democratic right. in some ways. Right. Sure. I like that delineation between the two and to think about, you know, how this idea evolves over time um, to good framing. So. Um, when Locke dies, do you bring up this point where um, Callan seems to, um, on some instances, omit the role that Locke plays in the development mm -hmm. of cultural pluralism. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, it's actually, it's, it's sort of the opposite in a sense. He kind of omits the role that Locke plays when Locke is alive. Right. And okay. then after Locke dies... Um, that's when he first tells this story um, about mm -hmm. the Thanksgiving dinner. He actually tells it um, in a kind of quasi-eulogy of sorts uh, that he first gives at Howard in 1955. Um, on there, There's an event that's taking place at Howard on, on uh, the Harlem Renaissance, they call it the Negro Renaissance, uh, 30 years later. And, Ka and Callan speaks there. And then again, in a few months later, that same year, uh, at NYU in a sort of retrospective on Locke. And it later becomes this article called Alain Locke and Cultural Pluralism. Uh, and he tells this story. And, um, you know, there it's a story, of course, that he's recalling after uh, nearly 50 years after it happened. 
So um, my research, which was extensive, tried to figure out how accurate this story is. And um, what I came to conclude is I think that even if Callan and Locke did not sort of in a smoking gun kind of way use the word cultural pluralism with each other at this exact time surrounding this Thanksgiving dinner, um, that writings that they wrote at the time actually about the student-teacher relationship um, that Locke wrote about in in an essay Uh, in 1907 called Oxford Contrasts, where he compared his Harvard and Oxford education. And uh, Callan wrote in an unpublished letter uh, to one of his professors, Barrett Wendell at Harvard, they're they're incredibly similar in that they really liked the relationship between the Harvard instructor and Harvard student better than the one at Oxford because they were able to talk about more taboo things, right? And they were able to... Um, you know, talk about issues perhaps like race, um, which uh, I think very possibly could have led, if not to the actual words cultural pluralism, which only appear in print in 1924 in a book that Callan writes, but definitely the idea of, of cultural pluralism. And so I think, you know, why did Callan wait so long to tell this story? I, I'm not sure. I mean, we can speculate. But at the end of his life, in, in 1973, uh, which is, you know, almost 20 years after Locke passes away, um, in a letter to a mutual friend of theirs, Milton Convitz, uh, Callan expresses regret that he didn't bring this up earlier. Um, and in that letter, he actually, um, it's sort of uh, remarkable in referring to Locke, um, he talks about Locke as the first black cultural pluralist um, and authentic Zionist, he, he writes. I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but um, but he clearly uh, felt that Locke was connected to the genesis of this idea in, in a really profound way. Sure, absolutely. I As we come to the end here, um, I think it's, um, we could, maybe end on this question and talk about your your current research, but why do you think it's important to study cultural pluralism either through the lives of these two men or just in general? Um, you know, I think it's important because these issues have not gone away um, for better and often for worse. Um, you know, in the era that we live in, uh, in the United States, uh, there are enormous cultural divides. Uh, there are culture wars, if you will. Uh, Andrew Hartman, a great intellectual historian, has written a book about uh, the history of the culture wars. And I think uh, the Trump era has shown that they are still with us in a very big way. And so um, having people be able to understand each other and understand uh, different cultures and different ideas is so important um, in terms of creating a more a stable society, but also a more interesting society, a society that produces more complex and interesting uh, art and film and literature, uh, which are, of course, what what Callan and Locke were were also heavily invested in. Uh, so, so I think there's just tremendous value in this. And of course, it's not just the American context. I'm Canadian. It's the Canadian context. It's it's Europe. It's Africa, it's the Middle East. There are all sorts of diverse societies. And and I think this model of friendship, right, as opposed to other metaphors like the melting pot, like a food metaphor, the salad bowl, or or there have been musical metaphors that even Callan and Locke both use, like symphony or music of civilization. And I think the friendship metaphor helps us understand the goals of cultural pluralism a little bit better. And the university is, by the way, for both Callan and Locke, and I think myself, I I feel similarly, right, is, is kind of the ideal place to cultivate um, this idea of cultural pluralism, to have people from different backgrounds interacting, disagreeing, agreeing. Um, you know, that's, I mean, maybe, you know, in part... Um, part of the elitism of the project, but, but I really do think, uh, that is, is one of the main purposes of, uh, of the modern university and it could have, um, great positive effects 
Uh, of course, this also has to take place outside the university too. Um, these friendships um, need to take place in in order for people to to really benefit from diversity, for it to be something very positive, which I think it is and it should be. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if to know someone, you have to break bread with them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say, hey, here's my friend I went to school with, but you never communicate or you don't communicate regularly with mm-hmm. them or, you know, people from diverse backgrounds that you actually sit down and have a meal with or write a letter to or in constant contact with, you know, it only it has to involve, you know, more than just hey, that, you know, I have a friend, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that I never see. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. And I, and I want to be clear, right? And I write about this in the book. You know, Callan and Locke, when they started becoming friends at Oxford, they were hanging out together. They were getting drunk together. I mean, they were they were behaving as friends behave. Uh, sure. And so it's not just about the exchange of ideas. They were clearly doing that, too. Um, right. But they were sure. they were forming um, a real bond. Sure. So, what is next for you in terms of research? Um, well, um, right now I'm working on a project uh, in in American Jewish history, which is sort of where where, where my background is on um, Southern Jews. I spent the last uh, six years at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, in Richmond. And so this is a project on Southern Jews and the lost cause and, and how Southern Jews participated in lost cause commemoration as a kind of way to integrate into um, the white Christian majority uh, in a way that was really not possible for, for African-Americans, of course. And, um, at the same time, I'm also going to write about moments where, um, Jews uh, resisted the lost cause narrative in the South. And so it's going to be uh, a history looking at the South broadly and, and starting all the way um, at the end of the, the Civil War, 1865, and, and probably going uh, to 2017 to um, the, uh, the Charlottesville um, riots uh, that took place um, to to sort of chart the evolution of of how Jews have fit into the South and seen themselves as part of this um, Southern idea. Interestingly enough, even when these are people whose families immigrated long after the Civil War, right? So they don't have any direct connection to it. Some did, but many did not. Yet, um, yet many Jews did participate in. Um, lost cause commemoration, right? This idea that the South or that the Confederacy was was this noble institution, that slavery was not the cause of the war and was not actually that bad, uh, that Robert E. Lee uh, was a hero and, and all of the Jews participated in that and also participated in in very specifically Jewish ways um, and, and in and in sort of um, emphasizing Jewish heroes of the Confederacy and Jewish participation in the Confederate cause. So um, that's where uh, that's where I'm going. Um, that's that's where my research has has taken me next. Sounds very provocative. You're going to get some people uh, upset, probably. I may already have. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but look, it's important. And, and I'm not judging. I mean, you have to understand there was a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in the South. Um, as you know, synagogues were, were bombed during the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so these were, this is um, people who were, who were walking a tightrope as it will. And for, for a lot of Southern Jews, I think the lost cause was kind of a more benign way for them to integrate into this white Christian majority. Um, than than other ways. I mean, they Jews, when celebrating the lost cause, did not emphasize things like slavery, right? Because that wasn't what the lost cause emphasized. They emphasized Jewish belonging in the South. And mm. that's what, you know, I mean, even Callan and Locke, I mean, their story is really about belonging as well. Um, this is a Jewish story. This is an African-American story. Um, you know, for Locke, who also, of course, was gay, um, there is a story of, of how he belonged to various communities that might have 
some seen him as an outsider in that way. Um, you know, Callan was kind of shifting between uh, the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world. Uh, he married a non-Jewish woman, which put him at odds with uh, some in the Jewish community. Um, so both men were trying to belong, and, and Jews in the South uh, were trying to uh, belong as best they could. And they had uh, more and different opportunities to do so, obviously, um, than non-white people, uh, than African-Americans did. Um, it's a complicated story. I'm just getting started sure. with it, um, but I've done some writing on it and, and hope to do more speaking on it uh, soon. Well, sounds very interesting, and we look forward to reading your next project. But I want to thank you for being a guest today on the New Books in Intellectual History channel. Thank you so much for having me. Really, really appreciate it.